Whether you're a pistachio purist who loves the experience of cracking them open, or you just love the convenience of no-shells pistachios, wonderful pistachios is the perfect healthy snack when hunger strikes. I happen to love me my pistachios. Uh, I don't want to screw around with the nuts, so I love the no-shells pistachios. Anyway, there are a bunch of flavors to choose from, like honey roasted, smoky barbecue, jalapeno, lime, and more. Wonderful Pistachios is one of the highest protein nuts, and each ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. Visit wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. The best part of spring cleaning is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless, and then Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data, unlimited talk and text, delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone and any Mint Mobile plan and bring your own phone number. Along with your existing contacts, ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited-time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. My team here, they're on Mint Mobile, and they like it. For a fraction of the cost, Mint Mobile proved to have excellent coverage with no drop calls or unsent texts. Plus, they make it super easy for me to activate my device just by following a few simple steps online. And bam, done. To get this new customer offer and the new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash literally. That's mintmobile.com slash literally. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash Literally, $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speeds slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Stephen, it's so good to see you again. How are you? I'm so happy to see you. It's been way too long. Way, Way, way too long. Way too long. Hey, everybody, welcome to Literally with me, Robert Q. Lowe. Um, I like to give myself a middle initial to make myself sound more important and smart. Uh, Steven Soderbergh today. I've been blessed to work with a lot of directors. He might be at the top. All of his movies from, you know, the Oceans movies to Sex, Lies, and Videotape to uh, Traffic. She won the Academy Award for Best Director and on and on and on. He's directed theater. He truly is an auteur. He operates the camera. He edits the movie. Um, we work together on Behind the Candelabra. And he l- truly crackles with intelligence and vision. An, an inspiring, inspiring good dude. So I'm psyched that he stopped by today. The last time I saw you, you were crawling over another table to go get a, a wonderfully well-deserved award for Behind the Candelabra. I'm craving when it comes to that. I saw you throwing people out of the way just to get up there and get your award. It was unbelievable. Who knows when I'm going to get that chance again. So, <laughs> Well, it's really funny. I, I was looking at some of uh, my research and 
you have a great quote, which is if you if you're bored getting into the uh, location scout van, maybe you should let somebody else get into the location scout van. That was my my favorite thing. I so related to that. It's it's weird. Scouting is is such a crucial part of the process, and it makes me crazy. <laughs> well, it's the best job in the world, and. For for those of you who haven't had the uh, pleasure to work on a Steven Soderbergh movie, um, my favorite thing about working with you is um, when you're operating the camera and someone makes you laugh, you can literally look up and see your head bobbing over the eyepiece. And that was super satisfying. Well, and there was a lot of that on Candelabra. The whole thing was fun. And how many days did you shoot it in? Something really extraordinary. It was 35, which is, I think, a good number. It was enough for us. Tons of locations, though, and, and big production numbers and extras. Yeah. And I mean, it was a, it's not a small movie. No. I mean, there are, two, there are two crew members. If I don't have the absolute best people in these two positions, I can't make anything good one of them is the location manager and the other is the dolly grip if i don't have the world's best dolly grip i i can't get the shots so those people are crucial it's it's really really true and you know one of the great things about the business today is there's so much opportunity there's so much work there's so many platforms that there's so much content unfortunately it's very hard to get the best the best people because there's so much work i you're gonna love this i literally was on a movie in canada and canada really struggles with crews and the we kept having problems with the dolly grip turns out when he came in for the interview he had worked with a dolly loading trucks that was the dolly no and this is a this is a skill if if people could watch the the dance that a dolly grip does with a dolly in a complex multiple destination master mm -hmm. shot it, this 350 pound device that they're pushing turning driving you know making the camera rise and fall you have to be you have to be li listening for the cues and then looking at the marks on the floor and if you and if you miss it not only is the camera in the wrong place but it's also out of focus yeah and um, I remember my first um, day on working with Coppola, we had a, a we had seven people and a two page master walking through a backyard in the Outsiders. Right. And and track laid everywhere. The track was, for whatever reason, I remember was laid up at the height of my knee mm -hmm. and the actors had to step over like goose step oh, over wow. it. But but look yeah. like they weren't doing it yeah. <laughs> was it was uh, it was mental um i just watched kimmy last night it's your oh, new good. movie good. it's great it's super fabulous um <laughs> and and i mean this in the best way because i i love creepy like like ominous movies um like super un uncomfortable what what's going to happen and and that certainly checked every box and i was i have to say i was thinking this is great for Steven. They shot in one apartment and one office building. He must have loved it. Yeah, well, that's the that's the good part and the bad part um, because you have to find ways to keep that visually interesting. 
um, without going crazy. If you go too crazy, then people tap out. Um, but it's a kind of movie that I like too, as a as a viewer. Um, I love thrillers, yeah. And this was a really nice blend of Rear Window, The Conversation, and mm -hmm. Panic Room. Um, and so David Cap, who actually wrote Panic Room, wrote this script, and it was it happened very quickly. He wrote it quickly. Um, we turned it around and started right away, which, you know, I like being yeah, he, efficient. He, um, David, I had the pleasure to work with him on Bad Influence. He, that was his. That's right. That's right. I think. With yeah. Jimmy. Well, you know, we, we have a little tenuous connection because, so I, I did a movie, Bad Influence, in the early 90s. David Kep had written Apartment Zero, um, which was little seen, but much beloved. That was the same year at Sundance that we were there with Sex Lies. That's how I got to know David. Well, and how we cast Jimmy Spader was I and and uh, saw a very early cut before you guys went to Cannes with Sex Lies. Right. And it was, you know, Sex Lies, I, I, it's funny, I, I recently saw it again. Oh, God. Hadn't seen it. Hadn't, no, no, it's... Even actually, it's even better. I think it doesn't think seem like it. It doesn't seem like quaint, like no. a Jane Austen uh -uh. book or something. <laughs> no, I I know what you mean, and it does not. It 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 seems for me, and I loved it when it came out, and we cast James Spader right out of it. Um, Sex Lies and Videotape now is it, it's because the writing of it. Um, I mean, the the speeches, the conversations. Um, I was quoting it the next day to people. Oh, how great um, for them. <laughs> please stop. Um, but it was, that was fantastic. And I, and then I was in Cannes for the big um, screening. Yes. You were right behind us. It, it was the first time I'd ever been to Cannes and the first time I'd seen the big standing ovations that they give. It was great. That's, that's a nice room to see a movie. Isn't it? I also, um, I was too young to appreciate but I also think it is it doesn't get enough credit for having the world's greatest red carpet. And I have a theory about why the red carpet in Cannes is so great. Oh, well. And I know you've been re you've been waiting for years to hear this treatise. A lot of people have. How how long is it? It's well, the carpet or my treatise. Your um, treatise. It, it, it's not that long. Um, first of all, they send one one celebrity or person out at a time, so you're not in a line right. with somebody from uh, you know whatever. And so you own the red carpet. It's double width. So yeah, every picture, yeah. every picture that comes out of it has nothing but red in the background. Um, there are stairs at the end of it. So you get to, you get to rise up the stairs and then the women get the famous over the shoulder turn at the top of the stairs. Right. There are no interviews. So people aren't stopping you and they play music. There you go. It, it's pretty cool. The, you know, listen, the French chef style. What am I, you know, what are you saying? That's true. Well, I think you're right, and I'm glad you broke it down. I, the greatest red carpet entrance in the history of entrances, because I'm a big, I love to watch anthropologically how people behave. Right. And Pitt on the red carpet in Cannes was a mwah, ma, mwah, 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 masterpiece. <laughs> um, he, he, 
So it's it's um, Terrence Malick. It's right. uh, Tree of Life, which right. is like if you're ever going to go see a movie there, you want to see the premiere of Tree of Life. To me, like yeah. I can't think of a better movie to see, yeah. right? And, you know, a true auteur and big movie star. Anyway, Pitt comes down the red carpet, does his thing. He's great. Gets up to the up to the top of the stairs, stops, waits, one thousand, two one thousand, slowly turns, gazes off into the far distance, and who is at the beginning of the red carpet? But Angelina Jolie, and slowly she walks to him, and they she rises to the stairs, takes his hand, they both turn over their shoulders. And enter, and I thought that's fucking movie star shit right wow. there. I just witnessed. Where were you? I I had I was at the top of the stairs. I had already come down, and um, and I was it. And uh, this sounds like the worst name droppy story ever, but it makes <laughs> me laugh. But I like I, Mick Jagger was standing next to me. He goes, she's quite lovely, isn't she? Right. I was like, Mick, stay away. Um, when you were making Sex Lies. How did you find the that amazing cast? Well, I had a terrific casting director, Deborah Aquila. Oh, she's great. Yeah. We got the right people at the right time. If any one of them aren't as good as one of the others, it doesn't work. Like they all have to be operating at the same level and in the same film. Um, that That's the part I enjoy is watching the cast kind of fill out roles like that. It's funny you say that they're in the same film because that is the, the thing with ensembles is everybody has to be playing, you know, same tempo, same song. And I vividly remember coming in on Candelabra and had been a fan of the project, knowing you guys were making it going, Oh my God, I am so there for this. Are you fucking kidding me? Michael Douglas is Liberace. I'm, I'm like, I'm waiting in line now and but you don't know like really like i remember calling you going hey i have an idea with the makeup and hair and wardrobe but it's kind of a big swing are you are you down and you're like yeah but and it's it was a big swing but you just don't know if that's going to be in the same movie no and what you realize is is and this this extends not only to the cast um but the crew uh the producers the studio like everybody's making their own movie in their head. And there are times when you feel like you're all in sync. And then there are times when you have an encounter that makes you realize, oh, they're making a different movie than <laughs> I am. And you have that conversation. It's the best job in the world because it's, it involves everything. It involves people, it involves time, it involves money, weather is a factor. I enjoy it because of the problem-solving aspect, but also I think proficiency is compelling and you're surrounded by people who are really, really good at what they do. And that's exciting. You have a great team always. Um, you know, every director has, has a, every director sets feel different yep. and in, in theory are emblematic of who they are. And I, again, I was super impressed with um, everybody's happy on your set, but, and I don't mean but in a pejorative, it's not a chatty, talky, people are like 
focus. My friend Max Weinberg plays uh, drums for uh, Bruce Springsteen. And, and he just watches Bruce like a hawk. All he does is watches every move of Bruce. That's his job. And I felt like everybody on your set was very much the same. They were like, let's go. Let's be ready. What's happening? What's next? And, and it's maybe the most focused I've ever been on. And I think it's obviously because, like you say, it's the proficiency. But also you guys move fast. And that's great. you got to be focused if you're going to move fast. Well, you know, putting a band together is a, a lifelong process. When I work with people that I feel really are making the same movie in the same way, uh, then, then I, I'm very loyal to those people and, and want to keep them around. So, as you said, focusing on what's really crucial here, which is the thing that we're making. And so it's not about me, it's about the thing. And so that's why when I hear stories of bad behavior, it's not only disheartening just because you don't like to hear about things like that, but it's also, it's inefficient. It's if people are thinking about some asshole instead of the thing that we're all working on, that's a problem. Like, you're not going to get the best work out of that person. They're distracted. So it's, it's actually creating a, a set with a, a, a sort of calm, friendly atmosphere is the most efficient way to run a set. Um, for also the thing I, I always love about you, and I remember being a young actor and hearing about, like, I think I'd work with, Peter Bogdanovich at the time. And, and this is very early on. And they were like, well, he, you know, he cuts in his head and I'm a young actor and he cuts in his head. What does that even mean? And of course, now you get more experience. You go, of course you're cutting your head. You better be cutting your head or how can you ever make a schedule? But you take that to a, to a new level. You truly do. I'll never forget doing a scene where I got to knock on the door and Michael Douglas answers his Liberace. Uh, the way the camera was set up, you did me for me first, my side, and we hu- we had to hug and enter this this thing. We do my side, and you go, we're moving on. You never covered Michael, never covered him at all. Right. I could not. But first of all, I couldn't believe it for like a bunch of things. I was like, he's Michael Douglas is the star of the movie, not getting coverage. You're moving on, it, but you knew what you wanted in your head was my stupid face in the door. Michael going, come in and you're, you're done. You're off. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, nothing takes up more time than unnecessary coverage. Um, I grew up admiring filmmakers who made choices on the set when they saw how a scene was blocked. It's this shot, this shot, this shot, this shot, you know, where the cut points are and you go to work. But, you know, to me, especially for an actor to have some sense while you're rolling that this probably isn't going to get used. I've, that can't be a good feeling. <laughs> I did you did the scene where I uh, take Michael's plastic surgery thing off and we, there's that line that everybody likes about, will my eyes ever be able to close? And I go, well, not really, but at least you'll be able to see how happy people are when they see you or whatever. Yeah. You, I had I had been worked with you enough at that point to know you had your dolly, your dolly man doing his number. And I thought, I don't think there's going to be another shot in this scene. <laughs> and I was like, 
you know, so you got it. You want to get your stuff out while you're on camera. Uh, it was, I had so much fun on, on that. Yeah. Where else can you go surfing and skiing in the same day or check out a world-class art museum and camp out under a brilliant night sky same day or hike through the redwoods and get a luxury spa treatment? There's only one answer, California. No matter where you go across this state, you will find a way to play. I, look, I love California. Um, and I have not yet surfed and skied in the same day, although I do do both. So that is on my bucket list. It's the most beautiful place in the world. Discover why California is the ultimate playground. Head to visitcalifornia.com to start planning your trip today. You know the only thing I ever let interrupt my podcast? My dog. Take a minute now, please. Pet your dog while you learn about Bark the company dedicated to making dogs happy. Every month, BarkBox designs and delivers a whole new collection of toys and treats just for your best bud. Every toy is tailored to your pup's size and play style. From squeaky plush toys from BarkBox to ultra-tough, durable ones from Super Chewer. Every treat is made with yummy, healthy, all-natural ingredients like pumpkin, and sweet potato. Each box is inspired by a new theme and comes with fun surprises for you and your dog. For a limited time, they'll double your first box of goodies for free. I love making my dogs happy. Love it. It's my favorite thing in the world. And my dogs are obsessed with their chewable toys. BarkBox offers treats, keep my dogs healthy, and amazing new toys that keep my dogs entertained. To get your free upgrade, go to BarkBox.com slash Rob. So I came home to a little gift in my bathroom the other day from our friends at Harry's. To get what you want, you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. You know who challenged the status quo? Harry's. They saw customers getting ripped off by questionable products in the shaving industry and decided they had something better to offer. So instead of charging the same old ridiculous prices, Harry's found a way to make their beautifully designed razors, and they are beautiful, for a fraction of the price of the other big brands. Exceptional products, honest prices. That's Harry's. They have the highest customer satisfaction in shaving history and a no-risk trial. Don't like your shave? No worries. It's on them. Convenient subscription options that you can cancel at any time. And Harry's also has other self-care products that meet the same quality standards as the razors. Richly lathering, skin-softening body wash and scents like Redwood, Wildland, and Stone. And an extra high-quality, amazing-smelling deodorant for just five bucks. I love their stuff. I'm so impressed by Harry's products. All of it. It's all good. Don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash Rob. That's harrys.com slash Rob for a $3 trial set. I ran into Pitt at, at some charity thing right after Oceans came out. And I was like, you're so good at it. And he's like, oh, thank you. Thank you. And, I was like, and this is right after it came out. 
Like you're so good in it. I love the way you were like always eating on something and the color drained from his face. And he went, oh, did you, you notice that? Maybe I did it. Uh, maybe I did it too much. Oh. <laughs> and now, and now it's become a, a known factoid. And by the way, he eats all he does in Moneyball is eat. He eats everything that's not nailed down. Yeah, look, he 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 pitched that to me for it it became clear that's what he wanted to do. Um and I was totally up for it. What I was really stunned by was the first time we were gonna do it. He goes, you know, I've been thinking about this and I feel like I should be eating that Rusty eats all the time. I go, that's fun. Uh, what do you want today? And he goes, shrimp. And I said, <laughs> are you sure? He's like, yeah. And he ate a lot of shrimp. By the way, but as an actor, I know why he wants shrimp. He wants shrimp because it's protein, no carbs. And he's Brad Pitt. That's true. Uh, but I, that wouldn't have been the way I would have gone. What but would you have eaten all day? Pizza. Yes. God, the pizza is just such a good idea. It's just such a good idea. Whoever invented pizza should have a plaque. Yeah. Tell me the difference between directing on stage and directing a movie or TV show. I feel like I, and I have done some directing, but I couldn't direct on stage for the life of me. The single biggest challenge I thought about constantly, how do I create a close-up? Mm. How do I, at key moments, get them to look in one place at one person or thing, the way you can cut to a close-up in a film. Was there a, a universal solve to it, or was it situational? It was, it was partially solved. Um, I decided very early on that the staging in the space would be very theatrical and, and not real, not representational that I would change your sense of where you were with light, color, and very, very minimal props. And so that enabled me organically when I wanted to have one person on stage that you could see at all um, with a certain kind of light, you know, that, that it felt um, integrated to the whole piece. But Did that change the acting style? The fact that it was that the, the production was theatrical, was the acting adjusted for that or no? Well, I think generally speaking, you've got to make some adjustments to your performance. If you're in a theater where people 80 feet away are supposed to hear you, you know what I mean? Like it's and your face is small. <laughs> what the actors had to do to work in that space um, was different than what I would have asked them to do if we were shooting on film, certainly. Um, but they were very skilled at, at making that recalibration. What's the, the, the number one thing you look for in an actor or a performance, if there is such a thing? And what is the number one thing that, as you watch maybe other people's work or movies or whatever, where you go, oh, my God, no. <laughs> um, fearlessness is what you want. You, you want someone who, and I don't mean reckless. I mean fearlessness in the sense that they're not protecting anything. They're not protecting 
any idea that people may have about them in the real world as actors. They don't care how they look in terms of if it's appropriate for the character that they, quote, not look good. They have, they, it's never an issue or a discussion. They're just, they're, their goal is to, when you're rolling, just be that person, be that character. That's, that's what you, that's what you wish for. And it's, it's the, you want to create an environment in which that seems to be, you know, the natural place to go. And what is the thing if there, like, if there is that you're super on the lookout for? Oh, um, when I feel there's a lack of rules that the filmmaker never sort of sat down and thought in, in mostly in visual terms, um, what are the sort of visual, what's the visual grammar of this specific film? What are the rules? What are the rules of movement? What are the cutting patterns? What lenses are we using? You know, is, is it a, a, a sort of object? Is the film supposed to have some sense of an objective visual style? Or is it something that's more subjective where you can put the camera anywhere you can think of? Um, you know, so when I see something where it's clear, like nobody talked like that while they were preparing this or shooting it, um, that makes me a little nuts because I think that's a very basic part of the job. Um, you're you're very technically oriented as well. In fact, you have a can you basically the red camera is named after you, is it not? No. <laughs> No. I feel like where, where are all these where are all these stories coming from? Because I felt like wait, aren't you an early red person? Oh yeah, very much, very okay, much. Okay, well, yeah. why wouldn't they name a camera? Well, they should name a camera. It was already named that before <laughs> I even knew it was a thing. So no, I was. It was a very exciting time um, because I, I felt I was nearby the birth of a piece of technology that was going to change the industry. And by the way, you, not everybody felt that way. I mean, I remember people being so like, oh my God, well, it, you know, it, I remember the big thing was you can't do night exteriors with it. People are like, they haven't figured out the tech, like the early in the early, early, early days, but you were all in immediately. Yeah. For somebody who likes to work the way I like to work, it was it was a godsend. So um, you don't miss film at all. No, I mean it's it's. Uh, I would certainly never deny that as a capture medium, there are aspects of it that are unique. Um, but I would also argue, in terms of presentation, there's nothing that looks better to my eye than a, than a 4K laser. HDR screen like that shit's crazy, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, right? You know, and and film weave and dirt and splices are not uh, uh, that's not a natural thing. Like when when the negative is running through the camera, none of that exists. So to me, a physical film print has always been a problem because it's so easily damaged and it is. It is unstable in a way that you can't avoid because the projector vibrates. So 
high-end digital projection to me is is miraculous. You gave a famous speech about the future of of movies <laughs> and all that, and we all have our opinions about it. But what's the, what's the latest? What is your latest? Because even since that speech, there's been a lot. We've had the pandemic. We've had you know big movies come out and not do well. Big movies come out and do well. And you know your great quote was about uh, I don't think that. Um, at home, movie watching is going to hurt the movie business any more than takeout hurt the restaurant business, which was, I think, a great, a great quote. Well, I think the trends that I was trying to identify um, are still with us and are kind of increasing, um, partially because of what we've been through the last couple of years. But it was already continuing in that direction of sort of fantasy spectacle on one side. And, you know, art house, Oscar bait on the other side. And very, very little in between the kind of mid-range movies for grownups that I built my career on. Same. So, you know, those have moved over to the platforms. You know, Kimmy, Kimmy is a perfect example. This is a mid-range budgeted movie for, for adults. No, it is. And, and what I realize is like, I just watched... Um... Being the Ricardos, mm-hmm. Aaron Sorkin's movie, and his, you know, there, but, and it was like what made me want to be in movies was watching human beings and actors like and deal with conflict that's really super small right. and seems huge. Like that whole movie without a spoiler alert hinges on the fact that, that he come that he, you know, he's been out and about and womanizing and he finally comes home at the end and says, you know, in the famous Ricky Ricardo, honey, I'm home. And it's tiny. Right. And it's huge at the same time. And, but it's not somebody on a dragon. It's not a volcano exploding. It's none of that stuff. And I, and I, I, I feel like the movie business has kind of left us because I know you and I have the same taste and we're inspired by the same things. That's why we got into this. Well, yeah. Two people in a room is how I started. And literally, it's, it's still something that I return to over and over and over again. I think, the, I think two people in a room is is one of the most dynamic and and tense <laughs> situations that that you can come up with every everything that's ever happened in the world that's had an impact on us began at some point with two people in a room so i love that stuff just a little list of stuff that i loved about kimmy um it, i literally thought you actually put noise canceling headphones on my head <laughs> watching the movie when when the sound drops out like that and that's is that literally just having a track with nothing on it with no room tone all zeros yeah just that's it yeah it was that was that was a for an early period that was a, a controversial choice really amongst the creative brain trust there were some people within the brain trust who did not like that um <laughs> and, but i held my I held my ground and uh, one of those people later recanted. I like that I went right to the controversy and ended up on your side. Well, I like that. Look, it was, it's a choice. But that's what I'm saying. That's what's like, that's, why not? Why not do it? You want to see directors make choices. I watched um, David Fincher's Mind Hunter, which I love that series. Yeah. And in the very, 
very first scene of the very first episode of the series where everybody's super cognizant about letting the audience in and all the bullshit, right? All that stuff that doesn't really have anything to do with anything. He has a guy holding a woman hostage and he eventually kills himself. He never ever got closer on. And the guy has a full conversation yeah, with the cops. Yeah. That's staying true to Jonathan Groff's point of view. That's Jonathan Groff's experience of that encounter. And given this is the first time we're going to meet him, it's very important to emphasize issues like that of, of here I am in a high stick situation and I'm 150 feet away from this person. You know, staying true to that makes a better scene. And you know, I don't need to tell you how many other directors would be in close. Oh, sure. And like immediately. They'd have five, five sizes of all of it. So it's so funny. You knew exactly what scene I was talking about. It's, um, but you go, oh, I'm with, I'm a director who makes a choice. The other thing I also love about directors sometimes is why does, and I don't mean to sound like I'm being like a snob here, but when a waiter or waitress or attendant or somebody behind a desk, do they always need their own coverage? Do they, do they need a close up? And it's like, oh, like if I just hear the voice going, um, your order's ready. Why not know who that person? Why? why right. Also, where am I? Wait, who said that? <laughs> and also, you got this beauty close-up of somebody has one line. That's my whole point. Is every cut should matter? Every frame matters. So if you're going to go to that person and give them that kind of emphasis, there should be a reason. It, otherwise, thank you. otherwise, you're right. Like if if the main character and the story. Are, are not focused on that person in that moment, then, then by emphasizing them, you're actually misdirecting people. Again, in that, in, in, in Mindhunter, they, they, you know, the, the director goes to see somebody in the FBI. The director will see you now, the, the woman says. No coverage. You don't even know who, where she is in the room. And why would you? It's about yeah, the person. Unless there's, unless there's a point to be made by emphasizing that person in that moment moment and you can be doing a bad job by missing that as well that's right um zoe kravitz is great i didn't even know it was her for a while and i don't know why well she looks different yeah right um she's great. oh so the very very opening 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 scene i was like oh yeah i'm, I'm fucking down for this um who who is that amazing actor who's being blackmailed what's his name again oh derek delgadio yeah he's so good in it and his performance in in kimmy is so good. And I like, again, how dry it is. No music. It's super dry. No nothing. It just, it, I, I, it's, a, it's a vibe. It's, a, it's like a super hyper-realistic and yet stylistic, I felt. Oh, has to be. Has to be. If you're going to be in that woman's apartment for that long, you better, you better keep things lively. Do you, how much... This is my favorite stupid question that one gets asked, but I mean it in a different way. How much research did you do? <laughs> Kimmy is a device. For those of you who haven't seen it, I'm not giving anything away. No. Kimmy is sort of like Siri or Alexa. Um, did you do any research into how those devices are programmed and monitored? David Kep, I think, explored that more than I did. By the time he gave me... The script, I right. think, 
he had this was the jumping off point was David reading about this Amazon case in which there, there appeared to be a recording of a murder. And when that became uh, known and people tried to get Amazon's assistance in accessing it or using it or something, Amazon, I believe, took the position, this is really not our problem. And so David thought that was, you know, that that was an interesting setup. What if you were one of these voice interpretation analysts that that listens for when the when the device doesn't understand something or gets something wrong, you're constantly upgrading the AI so that it gets smarter. They have to, at certain points, they have to have people do this. And so he thought about a character who hears something that she has, uh, that gives her real concern. And as you can imagine, uh, people aren't, aren't interested in hearing about this and she just won't let it drop. There's something weirdly satisfying about that early sequence where she's correcting the AI. I don't know why I found that really satisfying. <laughs> why was that? You know what I mean? I, yeah, I don't know. I guess uh, you, you find some sense of accomplishment. As she says, I clear my list. I always clear my list. I guess she's into it. Yeah, I, I think that's what it is. It's, it's, it comes back to competence, like you were saying. Yeah. It's like, I think we we as human beings want to at the end of the day want to strive for something and want to feel like we're making a difference and mattering so when you when you see competent people on film you know what it also reminded me a little bit of a, just a smidge it had a little bit of three days of the condor in it in that yeah. you know she's sort of just a drone for the for the bigger company like redford was he's like i read books that famous thing yeah which is one of my favorite movies condor no i think i think that's true and I, and i think one of the interesting aspects of, of David's design is, is how he brings these two people that work for this corporation that should have no reason to ever be connected and in fact are separated by several significant layers end up in, in some sort of dance. That's, that's, that's part of the fun of the math of the movie, I think. He's very good at that, David. Yeah. He's super good. Now, why? Because David directs his own stuff a lot mm -hmm. now. How how yeah. did it come to you? How come David didn't direct it? How did this? How did that relationship work out? I it may have been because we have always wanted to work together. We've known each other a long time. We tried to work together once before, and it and it didn't. It we, we didn't finish it. We were working on a remake of a, a film called The Uninvited. And we had two really, really good, weird, scary acts. And we couldn't agree on the third act. Like what the, I was resisting the explanation of, of why these things were happening right. in this house. And David, David was taking the absolutely rational position that there has to be some sort of explanation for what's going on. And I, I kept saying, why? And we, we, we let it go. So I oh, go back to that. Go back. I want, I want that movie. Well, I think it was what we missed you know, was the opportunity to actually do something together. So I, I, David and I were in the same city and we had a drink and he pitched this idea 
about this young woman. And I said, please, please write that. Um, and he did. Um, I got to ask you about Moneyball. Walk me through that thing. Because I, again, I, I follow at a distance projects that even if I'm not going to be involved with them, that I can't wait to see, because frankly, there are fewer and fewer of them <laughs> as the years go on. Um, I love Moneyball. It's one of my favorite movies. Um, I would have loved to have known what your version of Moneyball would have been. And just wa- walk me through that whole story, because I find it really, really interesting. Well, it, it was, in retrospect, for me, uh, an interesting moment to analyze why that happened the way it happened. In the, in the 72 hours after my dismissal, essentially, um, I sat down and just tried to dispassionately walk myself through how we got to this result. And, and I think there were a combination of reasons. The, the, the most significant probably being my overestimating my power in that situation. I came onto a project that I did not originate and started driving it very, very fast in a very different direction than the screenplay, you know, I, I signed up for. And I don't think I spent as, I was so clear on what I wanted to do and so excited about what I wanted to do, I was just doing it. And so um, I, th- I think my, my lack of um, attention to, to some of the other people involved um, ended up working against me. And, and I just wasn't, I wasn't able at the end of the day to convince uh, the people I needed to convince to trust me and and let me do this this way and frankly if you're not going to do that then you should fire me because uh that's there's there's no other move for me yeah you want to make the movie you want to make yeah so it's there that's their it's their money and so the the good news was now my immediate problem was this was a thursday friday where it crashed I had 150 people that thought they were going to work on Monday morning that are now not going to work. So my immediate concern was I got to find something to do so that we can all go back to work. Um, And so Haywire uh, sort of came out of that Mm. urge to, to find something to do. Through Haywire, I met Channing. My life turned out to be a lot more interesting having met Channing, who I never would have met probably, or less likely if I'd not been fired off Moneyball. So, you know what I mean? I gave myself that period of time to think about it. And then I put it in the rearview mirror. Well, as you should. And, and like you said, is like, I, I would argue that it, it was not argue. It's clearly you'd rather have magic Mike and everything that that has to offer. You're going to do another one. I know. Yep. I'd rather, I'd rather have that than money than Moneyball, I just would have loved to have seen your version of it. That that's I I because what I had, had intuited that you were doing a more documentary like how would how is your version different than the the, the and I'm sorry to belabor this, but I just it I'm kind of obsessed yeah, with Yeah, it was a very it was a very uh different approach. We had 
27 of the real people playing themselves. Wow. We had, we had a huge cross-section of the team. We had Art Howe. Um, we, we were, we were going to try something on a scale that, that, that hadn't been tried before. I felt comfortable with it because I'd been leading up to this. I'd been working with non-professional actors and mixing them with actors mm -hmm. over the past couple of decades. So I felt this was, this was the right project to really push that idea really hard. Uh, so it was, it had a very, yeah, it was just a very different yeah. approach. But it led to Magic Mike. It did. It absolutely did. And the new Magic Mike, Magic Mike's Last Dance? Yeah. We're, we're prepping now. We start shooting in March. Um, and this all grew out of me seeing the live show that Channing and Reed Carolyn, the writer, Allison Falk, and her choreographic team created. They told me, oh, we're going to do this cabaret show. Um, and, I, and, and to be honest, I was probably a little like, oh, that sounds cool. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, whatever. Yeah, right. And um, I mean, they're smart people, but I, I had no sense of what you could do with it in that context. And then I saw it and I was completely blown away by it. Really? Like what, what they did with this show, with the dancing, is, is just, you just ask anybody who's gone to see it because you watch this thing happen every night where people come in and they think they know what they're going to see. Yep. And then they can't believe what they got. It's, it's, it's exhilarating. When I saw it, I, I came out of it immediately and said, we have to make another movie about how Mike Lane created that. It's, it's all that jazz, but with Mike, Ugh. you know, building the show that turns out to be the live show that actually exists. It's funny when you, it, it's exactly, I see the title and I go, oh, I think I know what that's going to be. But then when you describe what it is, I go, oh, fuck, I was not, I'm, I would not have been expecting that. And Mike Lane's all that jazz. I'm so there. Yeah, it's going to be fun. That's amazing. And then how do you, when, when you have, like, look, that's a huge franchise. So do you take advantage of the fact that you could ask for more time and money to make it? Or do you still use the same sort of discipline you would use making the original? Well, the first two... The first one was done, Channing and I paid for it, then sold it to Warner and all around the world. Like we were the financiers and, and then we sold it. Wow. The second one, Warner paid for, but nobody got paid up front. Everybody did it for scale, just as they did on the first one against an eventual return. It eventually did turn a profit. So uh, yeah. that was good. Yeah, for but, sure. This one, this one's being made for the platform, so it's a very, it's a very different financial structure because there's no back end. So you have a negotiation in which you're trying, you're trying to assess what somebody would be paid normally in a success that's similar to the first two films. Oh, that's hard. It is hard because we're in a world now in the streaming world where the 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 ledger of a dollar in and a dollar out doesn't exist anymore. It's not that, it's not that clean. A subscription service is a lot fuzzier than you make one movie, it costs X, you put it out, it returns Y. 
and that's your number. Like this is this is this is new territory, which is why everybody's so anxious. Super anxious. It's a great time to be somebody who makes things. The weather is getting warmer. It's time to ditch the jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. But there's no need to waste money on clothes that only last one season with Quince. Now you can get high quality pieces that never go out of style. You'll be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts for $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering with the top factories, Quince cuts out the middleman and passes the savings directly onto you. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. My producer recently made an order for Quince, and here's what he had to say. I'm really excited to revamp my closet with Quince. I cannot wait for my items to arrive from Quince. You know, I'm a sweater guy. I was looking at that burgundy cashmere crew neck. I love the blue chore jacket. Maybe I'll throw some joggers in there. So upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash Rob for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash Rob to get free shipping and 360 day returns. Quince.com slash Rob. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you've been listening to Literally long enough, you'll know that I am a big believer in getting the help you need. Therapy has been a big, big, big part of my life and something I think we should be all doing as needed, just like checking the oil on your car. I've spoken about this and we all carry around different stressors, big and small. We keep them bottled in and it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to get the things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist. And switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Rob Lowe today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Dot com slash Rob Lowe. I love fast cars, but there aren't a ton of high performance EVs. They're certainly out here there. But when I when I get a chance to get behind the wheel of one, it's I love it. And I was blown away by the Kia EV6 GT. When you get behind the wheel of the Kia, it, it is literally like being in a state of the art rocket ship, but also comfortable. The thing goes from zero to sixty. In 3.4 seconds, it is the premium driving experience. And of course, it's an EV. So the climate thanks you. SiriusXM provides access to over 165 channels in the vehicle. Music, sports, news, comedy, yacht rock. Let's go. Little, little steely Dan going in your Kia. Come on now. So check it out today. It is the all-electric Kia EV6 GT. I had a blast checking it out. Believe me, you should do it yourself via kia.com slash EV6. To learn more, that is kia.com.
dot com slash ev6 kia movement that inspires the other thing is that we haven't talked about the iphone the two movie two movies you shot on an iphone right at least yep yep um so if you're a kid out there and you want to be in movies like i wanted to be and i wanted to make movies and in those days you had to go to usc or UCLA to get your hand on any kind of equipment that would make anything remotely watchable. They, there's no excuse for anybody to just be out there, make their movie with their phone, right? Do it. Uh, no, it's really, it's really true. You know, it's, it's a, it's a variation of the, the new Apple ads yep. in that, you know, if you have a smartphone, you're in the entertainment business. There's, there's nobody stopping you. That's the good news and the bad news. Yes. Well, it's like the thing is, I, just because you like food and like to eat food and know a lot about food doesn't mean you should be a chef. Yeah. Yeah. Look, it's a, it's make films or just be part of, of making films because it's a fascinating job. Um, and, and there, there have been some talent. There's some talents that have emerged because of access to this new technology that have been really exciting and significant. Generally speaking, if you make 60 movies in a year and let's say five of them are good or considered great, like really, really strong. If you make 120 movies the next year, you're still going to end up, I believe, in around the five, six number of things that are great. It's not a linear relationship. If you make more stuff, that means you make more good stuff. I don't think that's true. I think it's much more complicated than that. So just because everybody can make a movie, as you're saying, doesn't mean that everybody can make a good movie. Do you see yourself doing this like Clint till you're 90 plus? I don't know. It's, it's, I don't know. It's not that I would ever tire of, of doing it or be bored by it, but um, I, I wonder... If I'll be, yeah, John Houston with the oxygen tank oh, yeah. in the wheelchair. <laughs> right. um, I totally understand why you would want to go out that way. Um, but it's, it's, I don't know three years from now what, where my head will be. I have no idea. I may decide, oh, there's, you know, there are a couple long-term writing projects I've been working on that, that aren't scripts uh, that it would be nice to finish. Um, how long will you sit with something like, like you say, okay, you've been writing something, you're working on it. You get busy on something else. You got to focus on that. And then you come back and there it is. It's sitting on the computer. And you're like, oh, fuck that thing again. Do yep. I, do you, is that a battle to, to start back to it, it? is for me? It's obviously not as much of a battle for you. Um, <laughs> and, and it is, it is absolutely appropriate and not smoke blowing to say your two books are terrific. Oh, thank you. The, the writing is so good. I, I wanted to ask, I feel like the best writing, it, it, it feels as though someone is speaking to you as, you know what I mean? It's, it's sort of, when it, when it has a certain flow, the, the, even the, the experience of them being words that you're reading begins to sort of fade and you feel like you're listening to somebody tell you something. And I'm curious as to what your what your process is in terms of getting stuff down and then making sure that it has that that sort of cadence 
that that just keeps you keeps you pulling through it. Oh, thank you. Um, well, I first of all, I write longhand on legal pads. There's something about about when I try to do it on a on a computer, it doesn't feel it it, it you know it doesn't feel the the, the same to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what's really cool is I have both my books longhand. I have them oh, bound. Wow. And it's wow. kind of my favorite thing. That's awesome. Yeah. It, yeah. It's kind of cool. It's so old school. Um, they, I got, it's weird for me. It's like you cutting in your head. I, for whatever reason, the, for what comes out is sort of what comes out. There's very little to almost no revisions. Wow. Well, then that's just, that's just, that's just, you know, good storytelling. You're, you're lucky, but I, I, Anybody who listens to you who hasn't read these books, I have to tell you, because the, only the first one had been published when we made Candelabra, but it was such a huge gift for a director to have that kind of understanding of, of somebody that you're going to work with. It, to me, it was, it was a goldmine. Debbie Reynolds had written a book also, and so to, to get a sense of her you know, before I worked with her, and she was such a... Oh, fantastic she's so good in the movie it's insane oh my god she was a trip and and it was the same thing it, it was just a it was one way for me to connect with her and talk to her because i could ask her questions about things i'd read in the book and it was just a great way to sort of start to start to communicate so it was a huge resource for me in addition to just being a great read no oh, thank you i i um i fashioned it into a one-man show that I, that I go out and get my, do you combine them or uh, actually what it really is turned is it's morphed into very little from either book is, is in it, but it just gave me the courage and frankly, the, the sort of cover to do what would be effectively my storytelling, talking evening with, but that is completely moved away from that, but it's in the same, it's 100% in the same spirit. Right. And there might be one or two set pieces that I know people like from the book that are in, that are they're in there and 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 it you know it's like you said getting out on stage for an actor I think is critical I think every actor has to be out there without a net at some point in their careers they just have to. It's as a director, it's such a fascinating thing to watch it every night and watch how quickly it 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 becomes what it's going to be that night like almost instantaneously you know what i mean you it just it it'll turn or and you go oh it's gonna go this way tonight when you're like you're like um oh there was no laugh oh no laugh here tonight okay hmm that's interesting and for me what's not so much on the one-man show but when when i do other things on stage is trying to get out of judgments about the audience It, it makes me sound super petty but all actors, if they're being honest, will tell you it's like that first laugh that's there every single night. And all of a sudden it's not there. You're like, what the fuck? And, or maybe you look out and the house isn't as full as you'd like or whatever it is. And, and, and the discipline and of, of going, Hey, there are people who are never going to be here again. This is their first time seeing it. And, you know, you come back and meet somebody after their show and you go, God, what a great show. And they go, yeah, really? And like, yeah, yeah. They, they do oh, all the time. Right. It's like the, you know, well, that's the, that, that, that live, 
that live element just can't be controlled. And I remember one night we had a, a show that didn't go well and we all knew it. And one of the cast members came back and said, well, we sucked, but they started it. <laughs> oh my God, wait. And he wasn't the greatest. Like, like there was something in the room. Like, well, there was somebody told me there's a, th there's a theory about you need five laughers. All you need oh, are five. Yeah. Interesting. And you're good to go. Not three, right. not 10, five. And then, and then there's, and, but they have to be out loud laughers. I'm a quiet right. laugher. I very rarely laugh out yeah, loud. I'm, I'm like, this is funny. And I think, and that's not what you want in an audience. You don't want to, you don't want five of me. Yeah. Um, and it's just interesting how, the, and then the, I did a, a long run in the West end and the Brits don't react at all. Right. Um, you know, if you go to Broadway, any pick any show in Broadway, go right now. There will be a standing ovation at the end of the show every single night of any show. We got 10 standing ovations over 160 shows. Wow. But you know, like when you get it, it's real. That's true, but that's pretty infrequent. That's No, they yeah. don't do it. I remember going, saying to the guys like, well, for right now, Hugh Jackman is in Music Man on Broadway. And you're seeing the clips of him coming out and saying his first line and that fucking place goes batshit. Now, granted, I'm not Hugh Jackman, but I'm, I am over in London doing a few good men with Aaron Sorkin. And I'm playing Caffey. It's a big part. And, the, you know, you come on stage. I said, so, you know, with the recognition applause will hold for the bit. And they looked at me like I was insane. The recognition applause. They're not fucking applauding for you walking out on stage. And that to me, maybe like, because that's the difference is Hugh Jackman does that in Music Man in London. They're not applauding for him just showing up. They're not here. Just showing up is Hugh Jackman. It's a standing ovation. It's so yeah. interesting. The culture of audiences. God, is he built for that? Um, I, I took my wife to see the boy from Oz when he oh, did Oh, well, it. that's beyond belief. No, it really is, though. I mean, it's, 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 it's a, it's just a, a sort of freakish gift yep. that he has for that kind of performance. Like, he's just built to do it, and he, and the joy that he has doing it is just so infectious. Yeah. Like, you're, you just cannot, it's, it's, it is the walking definition of irresistible. Like you just, he's just great. I wish he'd do that one again. Cause I never saw it, but I was a big Peter Allen fan. It was great. I love that. Well, this, this was great. I don't want to take any more. I could talk to you for a thousand billion hours. Well, tell me quickly. Yes. Tell me, tell me about podcasting. Like what was the, what was the decisive moment for you when you were like, I want to, I want to get into this. Um, it was that I realized I missed exactly what we're doing. A, like a, a long form unstruck un, with the emphasis on unstructured talk and we can navigate the current, the conversational currents as they come up. And you certainly don't get that on television anymore. I mean, Dick Cavett and those guys used to do it, whatever in the days. And you could even frankly do it a little bit on, you know, his latest Carson, but now that's way over that, that just isn't around anywhere other than podcasting. Right. So to, to be able to do that and to do the inside. So that that's really where where it started from. And it's been way even way more fun 
and fulfilling than I've ever, because I'm a fan. I get you on and get to talk movie making. You're fucking kidding me. Get Lindsey Buckingham on here and right. talk yeah. about, you know, fucking finger picking on Fleetway or it's, you know, come on, man. I had Ron yeah. Howard on the other day and we were talking about, you know, making backdraft and how you working with fire and all. I mean, it's like, it's, it's super fun. And, and the fact that people are into it, it makes it all the better. Great. I've always wondered because you're the only person uh, that I've had a chance to ask, like, how, how, does, how does that all work? And does it work? And it sounds like it can. One, 100% it can. And, but that's only in the last two or three years that right. that happened. And it, by the way, it's, it's only getting bigger and bigger and bigger because there's, you know, a gigantic number, I don't know what it is, of people in this country who still don't know what a podcast is or where to get one. And as that becomes more mainstream, I think this is a, a good, hopefully, case of being at, at the right idea at the right, you know, weirdly like the book. Right. And it's great because I love that. I, lo- I, I love podcasting and I love memoirs. Mm-hmm. And I want you to write whatever the hell you're clearly writing. Well, it's this, as you can imagine, it's, it, it's identified as BBOD, which is Big Book of Directing. Oh, um, oh my God, please. So, but I've been grinding on this thing. I, I don't know if this may be like the, there's this famous thing in the New Yorker piece called Joe Gould's Secret that Joseph Mitchell wrote about this guy in New York who was claiming he was writing the, the oral history of New York. And this, he knew him for 30 years. Turned out, of course, there was no book. So it's, <laughs> it feels a little bit like that. Um, but I oh, keep, no, please. No, I keep chipping away at it. Please, please, please write that book because I I have every book on directing anyone's ever written. I have my my favorites. I mean, there's great stuff in the mammoth. All the mammoth stuff is fantastic, um, and uh, the world awaits that. You have to finish that. Yeah, I got to find the time. Um, the only thing I'll say is is um, I wrote everywhere and anywhere. I wrote on planes. I mm-hmm. wrote on trains. I wrote on vacations. I wrote outside. I wrote inside. I wrote in cars. I did my best writing on planes. Yeah, yeah. Things that I've worked on that I have completed. Um, I find planes a really great place to to just go into your head. The best, the best. Well, I want to. I want to know when this is when this is done. Okay. And um, and um, let's uh, let's uh reunite ourselves on one of your sets someday soon please that would be awesome i serve it your pleasure sir can't wait well that's what you look for in a director folks what you just listened to somebody with vision somebody who's original somebody who's fearless somebody who's smart understands comedy and somebody who also lets you be who let you give give what you have to give. And somebody who's accomplished so much like he has. I mean, the man's won the Academy Award and made hundreds of movies and 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 is still curious and still interested and and tr- and engaged. Um that was if you enjoy movies, if you enjoy creating, if you want to be in this business, you guys just hit the mother load with Steven Soderbergh. And I hope you loved it as much as I did. I see the light is flashing on the answering machine here in the studio. That is the lowdown line. Hello, you've reached literally in our lowdown line where you can get the lowdown 
on all things about me, Rob Lowe. 323-570-4551. So have at it. Here's the beep. Hi, Rob Lowe. This is Susan from Libertyville, Illinois. Love, love, love your podcast. I've literally been listening since the very beginning, and it has been a big-time lifesaver during all of COVID. I've also enjoyed your books very much, and I was wondering if you've ever considered doing any fictional writing. With all of your Hollywood history and experiences, that could be quite interesting, and I would read it for sure. Thank you so much, Rob Lowe. Love you, and I'll keep listening. Oh, thank you for your support. I mean, really, without people like you, then this whole thing doesn't happen. And and I'm I'm super, super appreciative of your call and your support and the fact that you like my books. I love writing them. They they do take a lot of time. I have thought about writing um, fiction, and I have a couple ideas floating around, um, not the least of which is really talking about what Malibu, California was like in 19, in the mid-1970s. Um, and that's sort of my great project that I'm just ruminating. And one thing I've learned is an idea will happen when it's time. And you can force it, you can start it, you can stop it. But as long as you're committed to it and thinking about it, when the time is right, it's going to happen. Um, and I, I just have sort of confidence in that. I don't know when it'll be. But, but that feels like the thing I would like to write and probably will at some point. But thank you. Thank you for the call and thanks for listening. I will see you next week. Don't forget to download the rest of the season. Um, we have great people coming up and we've had great people. So check them all out on Literally with me, Rob Lowe. You've been listening to Literally with Rob Lowe, produced and engineered by me, Rob Schulte. Our coordinating producer is Lisa Berm. The podcast is executive produced by Rob Lowe for Low Profile, Jeff Ross, Adam Sachs, and Joanna Solitaroff at Team Coco, and Colin Anderson at Stitcher. Our researcher is Alyssa Grawl. Our talent bookers are Paula Davis, Gina Batista, and Britt Kahn. And music is by Devin Bryant. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on Literally with Rob Lowe. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Stitcher. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.